Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay. <laughs> First, let's start with you telling me the story that I told you about my trip to Ottawa as a kid. I was very, very in love with Trudeau. Senior, as you know, from day one when you saw him with his sandals, I told you how much I love this man, correct? This is my mom, Ruth Goldhar. She is a force of nature. I'm sitting in my backyard with my mom and my dad, Harry, and talking to them about one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. So for journalism, for you, dear listeners, you're welcome. So you understood and you enjoyed listening to the stories. And one day when you were in a private school, your wonderful principal and vice principal decided to take you on a trip to Ottawa, which was terrific. You were very excited. And you even said to me, maybe I'll see Trudeau, and we laughed. My mom's talking about Pierre Elliott Trudeau. For those of you who don't know, his son Justin is Prime Minister of Canada today. Trudeau Sr. was Prime Minister in the late 60s to the mid-80s. And love him or hate him, he made his mark on Canadian society. The view we take here is that uh, there's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. And I think so when Trudeau and his sandals burst on the scene, my mother, then a young woman in her 20s, was absolutely smitten. And growing up in our house, he was considered a bit of a rock star. Came home and said to Dad and me, yes, we had this wonderful dinner with Trudeau, Trudeau Sr. He sat beside me. And I said, oh my God, you're so lucky. He was wonderful. He talked to me and all. It was, it was just wonderful. And I told my neighbor, I told my friend, I told my brother, I told the whole world, guess what Kathleen did? Guess where she sat? I think I said it for years. Let me see. Was it 10 <laughs> Ten years, maybe? I think it was longer. <laughs> My dad, Harry, isn't saying anything. He's the quiet one in the family. What did you tell your friends? You, you told friends. I... What, about the incident? Yeah, what, what did it, you tell? Same thing as you did. I don't remember saying any dif anything different. I just want you to repeat, Dad. I'm trying to get you to same tell a story. <laughs> it's super fun interviewing your parents. <laughs> I told lots of friends, but not as many as Mom, because she talks more than I do. <laughs> when you did tell the few friends you told, what did you say? Uh, I can't remember specifically, but you were in Ottawa, and uh, Trudeau sat beside you. Do you remember where I told you we had dinner? The big hotel there? Yeah, the Chateau. The oh, Chateau... Right. Beyond or whatever it's called. Chateau Laurier. Chateau. Chateau Laurier, that's right. You Chateau Laurier, big table, and Trudeau happened to sit beside you. <laughs> and he was so nice. He was really nice. I was 11, I think, when I went on this school trip to Ottawa. Needless to say, my parents loved the story. Problem is, I was lying. 
I never had dinner with Trudeau. I did see him on that trip. He happened to walk into Parliament on a morning that our class was taking a tour. I still have the picture that I snapped of him somewhere upstairs in my house. But a private dinner? Eh, that was total bullshit. But this wasn't even a lie. This was, this was like some kind of crazy fantasy. <laughs> it was a crazy fantasy. And a lie. But it wasn't just my parents who loved that story. I loved it too. And what I loved even more was hearing my parents tell it. It was usually during one of their raucous dinner parties. My parents and their friends were so much fun. And to become the focus of their attention, it felt so good. But as I grew up and developed a bit more of a moral compass, I started to feel a lot less proud and a little sick whenever they brought it up. Yeah, you had enough. You didn't like it that we were telling everybody. No, it was making me crazy. I was in my 20s. It took a while, but I finally told them the truth. <laughs> All of a sudden, you came very meekly with that tail of yours between your legs. I remember this day so clearly. I was in journalism school, and I just couldn't take it anymore. Mom, don't tell that story anymore. I said, why? It's a great... Because it never <laughs> happened. <laughs> I wondered, is this really... What is with this kid? Seriously, what is it with this kid? It's kind of crazy that I kept my light going for as long as I did. But come on, doesn't everyone lie? Just a little? Then there's Mark. Is his inability to tell the truth just an extreme version of 11-year-old me? Or is he in a category all on his own? I'm Kathleen Goldhar, and this is Do You Know Mordecai? Chapter 6, The Liar. We all lie. All kind of little social lies, white lies, things like that. That's quite normal. Okay, so I'm normal. We all lie. I mean, not everyone keeps it up for well over a decade, but it's not a red flag. This is a doctor saying so. My name is uh, Dr. Scott Carroll. I'm a board-certified child psychiatrist. I'm actually dual board-certified in both uh, adult psychiatry and child psychiatry. So I've got a couple titles. Uh, I'm the founder of the INE Neuroscience Institute, but I've also served as the director of child psychiatric consultation services for the Presbyterian Hospital System. Dr. Carroll wears a few professional hats, but he knows about the psyches of both kids and adults, and he knows a lot about lying. Four basic ways you could categorize sort of the reasons why people pathologically lie or compulsively lie. Um, so the first example would be someone who has... Um, just blatant disregard for the rights and mores of others, doesn't follow rules. So essentially... These are people who lie for money or power, and they don't care how it affects other people. The, medical term would be the second example is the narcissist. Uh, the narcissist lies really from the basis of uh, very low self-esteem, and they're basically lying to make themselves feel better about themselves and to look more powerful or important to other people. It's like a compulsion. They really have a hard time stopping it. But most people who kind of lie narcissistically do it more episodically. 
And so it kind of comes and goes, which often goes with their stress level, how they're feeling. Another category is a depressed liar. The person who feels very bad about themselves, they just don't feel comfortable being seen or known, if you will. And the last type of liar is someone with borderline personality disorder. This is what Mark told me he thinks he has. Borderlines will actually go back and forth uh, between sort of being very anxious and then at times under stress, they'll become very delusional. So they're not really lying in the sense that they're aware of it. Now, they're kind of interesting. Now, if you do catch them in the lie and confront them with overwhelming evidence, they will sometimes admit to the lie, but then have extreme shame reactions and will be very dysphoric, sort of the opposite of euphoric. So in a sense, they kind of punish you for confronting them. And you can have narcissism with borderline personality. Right. So you often see traits of the other disorders in somebody. And so if you think about it, when we say you're borderline, we're just saying you have more borderline traits than the others. Are you born with borderline personality narcissistic disorder or are you made? It's more made, uh, it seems to be. There are some genetic components, but then clearly certain things need to happen in your life to develop that. But even then, there is an element of personal choice. So while Dr. Carroll says it's not always a genetic trait, it still often goes back to the relationship you had with your mother. Or primary caregiver. It doesn't have to be the mother, but whoever the primary caregiver is. If you have a parent that is neglectful or withholding of that kind of emotional Mm -hmm. thing that younger children need, can that lead then to somebody, let's say like Mark? Because that's what he says. His mother was distant. Oh, yeah. Oh, certainly. Tell me a little bit about your older brother growing up and as were you guys friends? I'm on the phone with Dawn Ramsden Lewis, Mark's younger sister, by 18 months. Close in age, but not close. No, we've always fought. We we my mom said that we fought since we were very little. We we never got along very well. He um He was always very sneaky, and I was always in trouble because I was the one that was in everyone's face. So he would antagonize me to no end, and then I would attack him, and then, of course, I got in trouble. I was a little taken aback when Dawn agreed to talk to me, but she said yes right away. None of the stories that her brother told my friend Aria or any of the other women came as a surprise to her. Yeah. Yeah, it's been going on, like, his entire adult life. There's been years of people asking me, is this true? Is this true? I mean, he told someone he was driving in his car and he was going, I don't know, 200 kilometers. And he got pulled over by the police. That's why he doesn't have a license. He never had a license. He never got one. Or that he fought in the Spanish army. He did not fight in the army. Do you guys ever talk about it as a family? Like, what's the, what do you guys say about all of this? I, the, they don't really say anything. They're just kind of like, again, you know, mm-hmm. every time there's a disgruntled person, we're like, again? You know, and, and like we've said, they're always really bright, intelligent, accomplished women. And they're like, how could they be so foolish? Mark profiled women like my friend Aria, open, honest, caring. And more often than not, they were single moms with strained relationships with their exes. And they were lonely, 
which left them vulnerable. I know that because I felt that way too. That loneliness can lead you to act in ways that aren't in your best interest, like sticking it out too long with people who aren't right for you or downright bad for you. Being a single parent or a woman approaching her 40s without a partner or both, it's really hard. And Mark would tap into that anxiety and then he would morph into the partner you wanted. It was his superpower. I think that's why so many women fell for him and why so many of them ignored the red flags. But I also believe that the reason why many of Mark's lies went unchallenged, why the women he conned didn't catch on sooner, is because most of us would never lie so completely. Why would anyone suspect that everything they knew about their boyfriend was total bullshit? He says he's getting mental health health now. Do you believe him? No, because we've heard this, like, before. The way he says things is, like, he's admitting what he's doing, but he's, his words are very careful. Like, I have these behaviors, and I don't know why I do them. I tell, I'm deceitful, and I'm not sure why. But he doesn't tell you, like, he was dating five women at the same time. And I believe that he doesn't mean to hurt people, and I think he he moves in a panic way. He says he's sorry and he's going to change. I believe he wants to, but no, I don't think he will. I don't think he can. I, I think, I think that's who he is and I don't think he can. It's very sad to see him so broken. Yeah. It's very yeah. sad, but he's like, he's, He's not a good person. Good people don't hurt people like he does. Yeah. Well, he's very, very bright. Yeah. He's very articulate. Well, you spoke to him. Yeah. Yeah, I know. He doesn't seem like he's off his rocker until <laughs> you hear about the things he, like, I, I think he's got some kind of borderline personality disorder or yeah. some, something. I don't know. I don't know what he has. I mean, there's something there, right? He's really, really bright. He reads a lot. He knows a lot. He could sit and talk to you about anything. It's really a shame, eh? The potential was there for so much. It's too bad that he didn't use this creativity for good. Yeah. Write like a movie or a book or a TV series or something like that because he would be so good at it. But the stuff he's done, like... You can't make this stuff up. Yeah. You know, like, it's, it's so unbelievable. But then Dawn tells me something shocking about what she thinks accounts for Mark's behavior. And it's nothing to do with his mother or what he might have been born with. So I believe that my brother suffers from uh, a brain injury because he had multiple concussions as uh, a teenager. It's the first time anyone has mentioned this to me about Mark, including Mark himself. He played rugby, and there were quite a few serious head injuries there. And then he fell off his bike uh, and was in the hospital for, I, I, I think my mom told me a week. I was pretty young, but it was a really serious head injury. So, like, I think that his teenage years is when he sort of started to change and became deceitful and deceptive and 
although it's great quality. Do you want me to use my radio voice? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is my old high school buddy, Chris Manette. And as things go, this being a small world and all, after Chris heard the start of this podcast, he realized that he knew Mark. They played rugby together and was there when Mark got hurt. I didn't really know him all that well. He wasn't a guy that I socialized with in a big way, but because it was rugby, there's a team element. So I remember a small guy, small-ish guy, and it was surprising because he was playing rugby and the position he played, which was hooker, was not exactly a position for little guys. The hooker is the guy that kind of takes the face off in a rugby game. So whenever you're playing rugby and you get into what is called a ruck or a maul or a scrum, these are highly physical, kind of dangerous places for a little person to be because there's so many big people around. And yet he went into this position like headfirst, quite literally and figuratively. And you said he had a nickname? Uh, Ramhead. Because in rugby, you generally don't tackle with your head. You don't go in head first. Um, that's a football maneuver, and that's why we see so many you know, issues about concussions in football. In rugby, you were always supposed to go in shoulder first, but he would go in head first every time. If he had the ball and somebody was coming at him, he would put his head down and basically you know, use his head as a blocking device. And so we started calling him Ramhead. So the last time I think I ever played rugby with Mark was a game and he went into a ruck or a mall and injured himself. We thought he broke his neck because he complained about neck pain. He was on the ground, he wasn't moving. He wasn't screaming, he wasn't writhing in any pain or anything, but it was clear that he was injured. Ambulance came and then it became apparent later on that it was probably a big concussion that he had had. After talking to Mark's sister and my friend Chris, I go back to Dr. Carroll. Could a bad concussion have been enough to alter Mark's personality? So head injuries, there are parts of the frontal lobe that have been shown to sort of house sort of your sense of morality. And so damage in those areas can, you know, dramatically change how people engage or feel about um, lying and cheating and stealing and so forth. Now, the question is, the problem is with like a head injury, you know, could he have injured those areas? Yes, that, that's certainly possible. But the thing is, that would have produced more of an antisocial picture. So it's a little bit different. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, did the medical care around his injuries actually sort of sensitize him to the caring or kind of start the, you know, kind of light the fuse for seeking medical care or seeking, you know, sympathy and empathy through, you know, illness? So what if... Mark's head injuries growing up were not traumatic enough to change his personality, but was it the attention he got while recovering that planted a seed? Because a lot of people, they sometimes they, they'll get started after they, you know, the, you kind of have to learn what it's like. So if you get put in the hospital for a legitimate reason, you know, and then you, you come to crave it. Especially with somebody who might have craved more love and attention. Dr. Carroll says this can develop into something he describes as factitious disorder. So that's a disorder where people have compulsions to seek medical care. And so, so they often will lie or present themselves as ill, you know, and, you know, and get inappropriate hospitalization, surgeries, things like that. 
and and really if you can ever kind of, if they ever get better and they can talk about it they can tell you that they just crave the attention often of the nurses you know someone who cares for them and listens to them and is attentive to them mark told so many women that he was sick and he got a lot of sympathy from his girlfriends when they thought that he was gravely ill some of them even got back together with him because of it and it's often symptoms that cannot be verified right that that you can't objectively verify how do you treat somebody like this so a lot of times you have to work on the you got to work on the foundation uh which is sort of that underlying sense of self uh work on repairing attachment and also work on you know the anxiety and depression underneath it it's it's pretty challenging you you really have to rewire their brain about how they work with everything identify everything connect with everything usually therapy takes you know several several years 5 to 10 somewhere in that range um if they'll engage that's the hard part is uh getting people to even begin to engage hearing all these possible reasons for mark's behavior it's hard to know what to make of it there may have been factors that were out of mark's control a concussion mental illness but when did he start lying to women So I met him when I was in graduate school. I was doing a master's in comparative literature at the U of T, and I was studying Chinese as part of that. Wendy knew him before Mordecai emerged. They met in the fall of 1993 at a cafe when Mark was about 20. There was this clear history, and it was verifiable. Um, and you know, I hung out with his family. The Jewish thing wasn't on the radar, actually. With hindsight, Wendy can see that Mark's deception was developing way back then. But at the time, she saw it more as a tendency to exaggerate that Mark enjoyed telling stories and entertaining people. He definitely enjoyed the attention. And Wendy knew Mark only a few years after the head injury, but it seemed he wasn't yet the compulsive liar that Arya met. It must have been a long process that evolved over many years. So, he was this very very young, wide-eyed, vulnerable, troubled person. He's very smart, very creative, extremely funny, um amazing sense of humor and good at sort of riffing on jokes, you know, remembering lines from movies and acting them out. Their relationship was intense, mainly in good ways, but as time went on, a side of Mark emerged that made being with him sometimes difficult. I was going to school, I was getting my masters, and he was struggling to get into university. He had a lot of issues with his family and trying to please them and trying to be good enough for them and feeling that he was failing all the time. And he was getting more and more depressed, and also he had a lot of anger issues. So he could have very angry outbursts that were actually kind of frightening. Although he was never violent against me, there'd just be this outburst of uncontrolled rage that was somewhat unpredictable. Wendy eventually broke things off and they didn't speak for nearly 20 years until 2010 when Mark reached out to her on Facebook. By that time Wendy's marriage was in trouble and their relationship was rekindled. For nearly 10 years Mark did what Mark always does. He lied and he cheated. It's so sickening to realize you've been betrayed and betrayed and betrayed and betrayed to this extent like and the betrayal just keeps going. It's like a tree with this immense underground network of roots going off in all directions and there's no end to it. It's like a bottomless pit. 
Do you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm David Kushner, and this is my brother, John. Growing up in Florida in the early 70s, kids were free to run around for hours outside. No plans, no cell phones, just a promise to be home before dark. When John was 11 and I was four, he biked away from our house, through the woods, to a store nearby. He was going to buy me my favorite candy, a little plastic alligator head filled with chewing gum. He pedaled off into the woods, but he never came back. Maybe have a word dog. I've been a journalist for decades, but the story I've chased the longest is about my brother, John. The story of what happened to him. I think the worst thing of the worst is that you never would find the person. On one hand, I desperately wanted to find something. And on the other hand, I was absolutely terrified of finding something. And the story of what happened to our family and our town after he disappeared. A little boy simply goes from his house through some woods to go to get some candy at the 7-Eleven and never comes back. That is every parent's essential nightmare. When you realize that anything can happen, anytime, anywhere, how do you go on? I just wanted to talk with other people who've gone through it. I felt isolated and on Mars. I believe now, looking back, it was absolutely to try to find some answers. And here I am searching for some kind of answer. And how the hell do you continue? This is Alligator Candy, coming this May, a new podcast from UCP Audio and Transmitter Media. Follow and listen wherever you get your podcasts. When the first episode of this podcast dropped, the reaction was immediate. First, there was an email. It read, My friend slash coworker has been his girlfriend for over a year. We're about to head over to our house and break the news to her. She's going to be crushed. Mark told this woman all the same things that he told the others. But now he was adding COVID to his list of lies. It was his excuse for not being able to leave California and come back to see her in Toronto. This woman called me later. She was crushed, and I felt terrible for her. Mark had been stringing her along for a year and a half. It seems to have started right after Aria dumped him for the second time. So clearly, when Mark sat across from me during our interview and told me that he was done lying with women, I wasn't the only woman he was lying to. If I looked at your phone, would you still be on OkCupid and 
Oh, I'm definitely not on those things, no. You sure? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not doing that. That's, You're not dating anyone? No. I, um, no. No, I'm not on any dating apps or anything like that. So I, um, I've known him for three years. The next message came through Twitter, and then I followed up with a call. When I was listening to the podcast last night, there were a lot of things that were being said that were like, oh, yeah, uh-huh, yep, uh-huh, I know, <laughs> yes, it all makes sense. Laurel got a message from a friend who said, you better listen to this podcast. This guy sounds an awful lot like Mordecai. I just, he texts me through WhatsApp, and then he'll call me. This won't come as a surprise, but Laurel, which is also not her real name, met Mark slash Mordecai through a dating app. I even thought he was like a unicorn because he's got this ranch, he's got this family. I mean, he told me the same exact things that everybody else heard, that he was brought to Toronto by a wealthy benefactor, that he was, he, you know, he's going to set up an art school. He lost his wife to cancer, um, all sorts of things. Like, I'm listening to this last night, I'm going... Holy shit. Like, it, it was just, it was surreal because you never think that you're going to be that person. Laurel and Mark were just friends. There were a few sparks of romance over the years, but nothing really took hold. He was in bed all the freaking time, and I wasn't quite sure where he was. Like, he would tell me that he was staying with his benefactor. I mean, he was always staying somewhere. He was, he called himself the Wandering Jew. Laurel reminds me of all the others. She's smart, kind, funny, and empathetic. But it's what she does for a living that stood out. I work in the homelessness sector, by the way. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And did you ever have a sense that he was homeless? There were times where he was able to meet me near work. But now it makes sense because he was probably staying within the area, which has several shelters. And he, he had also told me about, you know, going to visit shelters, making friends. He even went to one of the, um, they're called the spring sprung sites, the ones, the big tents that they had. And he said he'd seen what one of them looked like. But Laurel never caught on. I was like, well, he's kind of a quirky individual. This is what he does. Like, and I guess that's part of the draw. Like, here's someone who presents themselves as so out of this world. I can't imagine how shocking it would be to find out about a friend or a boyfriend this way. But Laura wasn't the only person that I heard from. I also got a message about a guy who claims he lost a lot of money to Mark a few years back. So far, there have been six new people. That male friend, Laurel, and four other women, including this one. I went to bed early and... Uh, I always go to sleep listening to podcasts, and I was like, I just want something new. So yeah, I, I just happened across the podcast, and the second I saw the title, my antenna went up, and then I saw the name and was like, oh, oh my God, uh, I do know Mordecai. I'm sure I haven't found all the people that Mark has conned, or that he stopped. Active dating profiles that seem to belong to Mark were recently discovered. Clearly, it's impossible to stay ahead of him. I also know that Mark isn't one of a kind. A number of women have reached out to tell me about their similar stories. Some have had children by these men. And it's not only men that are behaving badly. 
One woman told me that Mark reminded her of a former girlfriend. And then I heard from Mark. He wanted to let me know that in general, we'd done a good job, although he denies one thing. Remember the story Justine in L.A. told me that she thought Mark had told someone to go the wrong way because he likes screwing with people? Well, he wrote to me and he said, I'm not sure why she would say that when all the things that I've actually done I think is enough to paint a damning portrait of a fucked up dude. Mark also wanted to let me know that he's writing about his deceptions. He's starting a blog where he says he'll try and answer questions about why he lies so much. And he has a Twitter account. So far, he has just one follower, his sister Dawn. Um, I was listening to episode three, and I realized if he were to show up in front of me, I'd be willing to break all my fingers just to punch his face and, and, and say, you bastard, like, how could you be so flippant about people's lives? I introduced you to Rachel last episode. Her husband had died, and six months later, her son got sick, but he survived. It's just the most disgusting, lowly human behavior I've ever seen. Rachel called me once the podcast started because she had changed her mind. She didn't want to remain anonymous anymore. I I think it's a lot to do with the fact that the shame and the guilt that I've been feeling for four years. Um, At a certain point, I decided to start setting it down. Just, Just saying... Is this really mine to carry? Um, if he's the one to blame in the story, how come we're all carrying this guilt and this shame? We're doing nothing wrong except being open-hearted and vulnerable and loving and good and caring. And, and I don't think that's um, something that we need to be shamed for. So this is Andreanne. I do understand that some people will listen to this podcast and say, wow, these women are really stupid. But also, I feel it's really important to stop carrying what he did as kind of a scarlet letter on, on my chest or my forehead and just saying, this is his wrong. And... All I did was be too caring and maybe too empathetic and maybe um, not listening to my inner voice enough. I want women to know that if they've been duped in any way by a man on a dating app or anywhere else, it's not on them to carry that shame. This is his behavior. He's the monster here. And I'm tired of being shamed for that or, or feeling ashamed for that. I mean, do you ever really find peace with the really traumatizing things in your life? I don't know. But at least not to let it be triggering and re-triggering every time, unfortunately, another victim comes up and or, or, or trying to say, well, I could have stopped him or I could have stopped it. Um, so I think it's about giving the story back him as the author of that story and the choices that he made 
the terrible choices that he made to hurt people over and over and over again, those are not on me, and I'm kind of tired of carrying them for him. through the mouth of the river, into the harbor, and along the spit that stretched its long finger into the sea. I'm back where we began, at my friend Aria's house. Dad guided the boat carefully around the point, then we zoomed into the strait. My son and I are here for dinner. He and his half-sister are sitting on the couch with Aria. She's reading to them, while I finish up in the kitchen. See the island, Dad said? That's the island of second chances. That's where I lost the big one last week. I think Arya is done with second chances. He slowed to a trolling speed and began to rig the fishing lines. But I hope all of this hasn't changed her too much. That part of her that's forgiving and wants to see the best in someone, that's so much of who Arya is. And I hope that when she finds the right person, that she'll be able to fall in love again. What can you hear? In the kitchen, you can hear everything. You can hear everything. The book of love is long and boring. No one can lift the damn thing. It's full of charts and facts and figures and instructions for dancing. This podcast was written and produced by me, Kathleen Goltar, and Michelle Shepard, the best podcast writing partner you could ask for. Our executive producer is Stuart Cox. Our associate producer is Alexis Green, with assistance from Abhi Raheja and Danya Ali. Sound design and mixing by Mitchell Stewart. So if you like how it sounds, it's all him. Our theme song is created by Quiet Type. I want to say a heartfelt thank you to all the women who talked to me for this podcast. It's obvious, but it needs to be said. This wouldn't have happened without you. Thank you for sharing your story and for trusting me to tell it. I hope one day you'll all feel that you can use your real name. A big thank you to my Antica family, Sydney Bradshaw, Nina Beveridge, Katrina Onstead, Lisa Gabriel, Cam McIver, and Kieran Lynch. I also want to thank everybody at Boombox Sound. And a special thank you for Taylor Owen, my incredible voice coach, Athena Kirkanis, and our lawyer, Ian McKinnon. Shout out to Carolyn, Rachel, and Michaela, and also to Kelvy and Nathan, who put up with listening to a podcast about their mom and their stepmom's sex life. And lastly, to Neil, the man who I met online who made my world better. This is a UCP audio podcast in collaboration with Antica Productions. Our UCP team includes Jessica Grimshaw, Jennifer Sears, Josh Block, and Amy Bell. For more information, go to our website, ucpaudio.com. But I...